0: Welcome to the Freedom and Captivity podcast, a podcast about abolitionist organizing and visions in Maine. My name is Catherine Vestiman, and I'm the host of the podcast. Today's episode is about parenting and prison, how DHHS and the carceral system impacts families and parents who are incarcerated. Um, Today's episode is going to be moderated by Kate Vaughn, who will be talking with Kayla Kalel and Wendy Smith. Delighted to have you all joining us. Uh, And Kate, it's over to you.
1: Hey, I'm Kate Vaughn. And today I'm going to be helping to hold a conversation with Kayla Kalal and Wendy Smith. Um, And I'm a birth worker and a harm reductionist here in Maine. And I'm going to start by asking um, Kayla and then Wendy, if you can introduce yourselves a little bit and Um, tell us a bit about how you come to this conversation, what you feel is important for folks to know. And so we'll go to you first, Kayla. Sure. Um, So
2: my name is Kayla Kalal. I'm a person in long-term recovery and I serve on several different coalitions in in the state of Maine. um, And I do a lot of different advocacy. Um, I just graduated from the University of Maine at Augusta, uh, just like about a month ago with intersections between criminal justice reform, advocacy, and public policy. Um, and I'm a single mama to a beautiful, um, almost three-year-old named Trinity. Um, and when I was pregnant and giving birth with her, I experienced, um, a little bit of disheartening stigma, I uh, got a little taste of that, uh, associated with being a person in recovery. Um, and that was sort of my catalyst, my motivation for becoming a, a birth worker. Um, so I now am a doula and I provide services, um, specifically working with birthing folks who are self-identifying as people in recovery, people who use drugs or, um, or self-identify as being low income. Um, and with Kate, you know, Kate Vaughn and several other awesome birth workers in our state, we have founded the birth justice collective, um, which works with those specific groups of people that I just talked about and really just trying to ensure that, um, folks who, who want, you know, to have a birth worker and an advocate, have access to 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 one, um, and also I'm coming to this conversation as being a person who was previously incarcerated. So I have served. Um, I served three years at Maine correctional center, um, and I have also served time at like I think four different county jails in the state of Maine. So I'm really glad to be here, and thank you so much for for
1: inviting me. Thanks, Kayla, and congrats on graduating. Very thank exciting. you. Uh, Wendy, do you want to tell us a bit about you?
3: Yeah, my name is Wendy Smith. Um, I am also a person in long-term recovery. Um, I have four children. Um, Whitney is 24. Um, she also has my grandson, who I love so much. <laughs> um, my son is 15, and I have twin girls that are 13. Um, I am a student at Washington County Community College pursuing my associates in Applied Science, um, which I'll graduate next May. Um, I do a lot of work with a bunch of community organizations in Maine around reentry, rehabilitation, um, recovery um, and those sorts of things. And I'm also currently incarcerated
1: at Southern Maine Women's Reentry Center serving a five and a half year sentence. So folks can already tell we have some really powerful <laughs> women in this conversation. And I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation with both of you because I know it's something that we spend a lot of time talking about when we come together, you know, in our professional and our personal lives. Um, and before we dig into some questions, I wanted to place us in a bit of context, because um, So we're here to talk about how incarceration impacts parenting and families and particularly mothers and motherhood. And so a baseline understanding for this conversation that I I believe we all share is that incarcerating parents um, and mothers has significant impacts on children and entire families. And so the the so-called child welfare system is one we're viewing as an extension of policing and prison systems. And so for that reason, when I ask questions about it, I'm going to refer to it as the family policing or family regulation system, and 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 those are terms that come to us from the reproductive justice movement and and Black women activists, and particularly um, Professor Dorothy Roberts. And so I want to name that because the language is important because it rejects the notion that family separation is in the best interest of you know quote unquote child welfare, and it also feels important to just acknowledge for me that the history of family separation in this country um, is rooted in enslavement of Africans and African-Americans and genocide of indigenous peoples and removal of native children um, uh, to residential schools, which were essentially prisons. And so this like legacy of disrespect for family bonds runs really deep in our country, particularly based on race and ethnicity. And even here in a majority white state like Maine, um, in our present day moment, we continue to see those racial disparities in terms of who's incarcerated and which children are placed in state custody. And we also see enormous disparities in terms of class and geography with the poorest and most rural counties in our state experiencing the most severe levels of family separation. And sort of the last things that I want to point out are that you know, according to a Maine Department of Corrections report from 2019, 72% of women incarcerated in Maine in the previous year were there for drug-related offenses. Um, and so a, a vast majority of women in Maine who are locked up are there because of substance use-related issues. And, and roughly 78% of incarcerated women at that time were also mothers. And Uh, 90% (laughs) of incarcerated women at that time had experienced multiple adverse child experiences or ACEs, right? So have experienced significant trauma. And I know I'm not telling Kayla, I'm not, and Wendy, I'm not telling you anything (laughs) you don't already know, but I think for folks listening, it's really important to couch us in that context. Um, And so with that, I wondered if we could start by... Um, you know, I'd love to have each of you talk a bit about what parenting through incarceration and involvement with the Department of Health and Human Services, the Family Regulation system, what does that look like for you and folks in your community? What have you experienced and and what have you seen folks you care for experience? and and maybe we can start with um, Wendy and then go to Kayla. From my
3: experience, Um, parenting while incarcerated is super hard. Um, It's been really difficult maintaining a relationship um, through 15-minute phone calls. Um, It's a little story about my situation. Um, I was, before I become incarcerated here, um, a few years before, actually, I was Um, using substances um, to maintain until I got into some treatment and I was six days out of uh, before my treatment appointment and DHS knocked on the door. I was lucky enough to have a mom that I could call and say you really need to come and get the kids Um, and she did. Uh, I didn't have any other options. They were going to take them and told me that they were going to separate them because they wouldn't have had a place to house them together. Um, My oldest daughter was 17 at the time and refused to go. Um, She did argue with them, um, said she knew her rights, that she was able to stay. Um, My children suffered greatly, um, but so did I. So they removed my purpose from my home to maintain, you know, get into treatment and maintain my recovery. And I fell off. I felt like I had no purpose in life. Um, I become incarcerated multiple times. I, you know, I, I had given up. Um, My children today, um, although I have a relationship with them, through phone calls um i haven't been able to see them since i've been in almost three years and that's due to the visiting policy i signed my i went to probate court and i signed my um my my custody over to my mom so that dhs had to back out and with that um i'm not sure if it's dhs policy or doc Mm -hmm. policy Um, they require like Um, notarized paperwork to be able to um, get the children approved for visits, which is far different from my last sentence here. I didn't have to have that. Um, And it's been a struggle with the pandemic to be able to do that. So I haven't been able to see my children um, splitting up a 15 minute phone call between three young kids is super difficult. Um, You know, missing the most vital times of their life. Uh, my children coming in, my twins coming into teenage years, um, meeting their mom, and I can't be there. Uh, My oldest daughter is, you know, facing a lot of anger and resentments, which is understandable, but it doesn't make it any easier. And I'm missing time. I'm missing time with my grandson, who's growing and, you know, in my children, like with their school, I, I I have no idea what's going on with them. I don't know. Oh yeah, I'm doing good in school. Well, I can't. You know, my son's getting ready to graduate next year. He's graduating a year early, and the odds of me being there are slim. So, um, it yeah, it's it's really difficult. Um, and I see the women in here facing a lot of the same things. Um, someone that's really dear to me. Um, came, we were in the drug, drug court together and, um, her children are like my niece and nephew and, um, her baby's dad, uh, kind of fell off, you know, fell off a little bit and was struggling. So she had to go get the children and me and her lived together and was housed in a weekly rated hotel room. And, uh, so she went to drug court and asked for help. And the help that she got was they called DHS and they, they took her children. Um, She came in here um, on a 30 month sentence, one month prior to getting her children back. And um, since being here, they've adopted her children out to a 77 year old family member and told her that she couldn't have contact with them. So I see that a lot in here um, with, children getting adopted out um, to not everybody has a family member that can take them um, due just to their length of sentence, um, which is really disheartening to me. And it's, it's, yeah, it's just horrible. It's, (laughs) it's really difficult. um, And it's not helpful for anybody, you know, the women's recovery and rehabilitation to take away their purpose. So That's a lot of, um, you know, what makes me so passionate about doing these types of things is to spread awareness that, you know, it's not only harming the ones inside here, but it's harming the children as well when they're crying for their mom and can't, you know, can't have contact. So,
1: yeah, Wendy, I'm just, I'm taking a deep breath because I want to like honor how, how much weight there is and what you just shared. And I, I appreciate you going to those places. Um, and, and Kayla, I'm, I'm sure you have, have plenty to add there too.
2: Yeah, um, thank you so much for sharing that, Wendy. Um, that, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the first thing that comes, to, the first situation I guess that comes to mind um, when you ask that question, was when I was serving my three-year sentence, um, and it's very similar to like a lot of what Wendy has shared, but um, specifically I remember this woman coming into the pods, which is um, the pods is like 23 hour day lockdown. So that's usually where women are housed if they haven't been classified yet, if they're first coming into the prison system, um, or a lot of times if the prison system is extremely overpopulated, which happens frequently, they'll house women there. Um, so, you know, you're, you're talking 23 hours, out of the 24 in a cell, um, you eat, sleep, eat, sleep, um, go to the bathroom all within this like tiny little cell. And this woman, um, was pregnant. And so I was, I served, um, the duration of her pregnancy with her in 23 hour day lockdown, um, in the same pod. And it was just probably, and, and it, it, I say this, like it, it wasn't even my situation. Right. But like I was there for it. And I remember like when she went into labor, they, they, you know, took her to a hospital, a local hospital and, and she had her baby and um, she had her baby while the um, guards were still in the room. And um, you know, just, ex- just an extremely dehumanizing um, situation. And it wasn't even within um, 72 hours that she was wheeled back into that same pod, um, back into that same cell without her baby. Um, and. I just, there is no sound in the world that's comparable to the cries of a, um, a mother that has just had her child stripped from her. Um, and, um, you know, she wanted to breastfeed. I remember she was like pretty adamant about being successful with breastfeeding, breast pumping while she was in, um. And the, um, hot water in the cells, the the water in the cells doesn't get hot. There's not enough water pressure, um, you know, to have sanitary pumping products, uh, you know, you can't even clean, she couldn't even clean her pump. Um, so, and and, I mean, the stress alone is enough to, to, you know, halt milk production, um, and the trauma to the body of having your child taken from you. There's just so much to unpack there. Um, but, it is just extremely traumatizing, and we know um, a lot of evidence shows us that the act of incarcerating a person that has substance use disorder actually increases recidivism. So when we put somebody in jail or prison um, for substance use disorder, which is really you know something that needs to be treated by a doctor and it's a public health issue and not something that needs to be criminalized, we're actually increasing their chances of um, you know having a reoccurrence of symptoms of overdose death of um, coming back to jail or prison, um, and separating families is, is just awful. We're creating the next generation of broken people when we do that. Um, so yeah.
1: You know, thinking about the, the pain of the separation and, and how there's this common, you know, saying in sort of Abolition abolitionist circles and folks who do work around incarceration that when we incarcerate mothers, we really incarcerate entire families and even entire communities and, and it sounds like, you know, that is resonating with what I'm hearing from both of you. Um, But I'm also curious about the ways that you see people and the ways that you yourselves have um, found found ways to still maintain connections um, and strive for a connection and, and a feeling of family, despite all of this. And Kayla, in particular, I'm thinking about the, the breastfeeding meal train, and I'm wondering if you can um, or other experiences around breastfeeding that I know you've talked about in the past and how um, you've seen mothers still maintaining connection through um all of these barriers presented by separation and incarceration.
2: Um, yeah, absolutely. So I think that um, despite like the oppression that people face, um, we are still, I mean, the most amazing cr- imaginative creative folks I've ever met, I met while I was incarcerated. And just like you said, like even in the depths of like hell, essentially, you know, despair, we still try to find ways um, to keep that connection. So one Um, situation, like you had just kind of touched on, there was a woman that, um, you know, was pregnant and incarcerated and she had her child and wanted to breastfeed and her family and her child were significantly, um, you know, Maine is a huge state and it's very rural. So she was pretty far, her family and her child were very far away from the prison. And so she didn't have a way at first to get the breast milk that she was pumping to her, to her newborn baby. So there was I think it was the main breastfeeding coalition. And there was another um, main organization that was part of this, but they they established a meal train. So, um, you know, weekly, people, community members would go to the prison and pick up her milk and bring it to her, her family or her her mom so that her mom could give her newborn baby her breast milk. Um, and that was so beautiful. And then there's like, so many other amazing situations where you know, like we all just kind of hold each other up through these like extremely, um, traumatizing situations. Like that woman that had the baby that was in the same pot as me, we all just kind of like rallied around her, you know, to the best of our ability. And like, sometimes, um, there's not a lot you can do, but just like allow someone to just like cry and just be there, you know, and support. And, um, we did, we had like a, um, you know, we didn't have anything that we could like really give her for presents, but like we had, you know, a baby shower in the pod where we would yell to each other and like lift her up and celebrate her child's life. Um, we voted on what we were like, she wanted the whole group of ladies to be part of, um, naming the baby. So we voted on the name of the baby and, you know, you, I think, um, you just have to like, in the in those type of situations, you just kind of have to like find even if there's just like one little flicker of hope, like and just hold on to it, latch onto it, and um use the community that you create and the family that you create in there too. Like sometimes, um, like you said, you your family is so far away from you. So you find family um in people and places that you definitely wouldn't expect. But um,
1: yeah. Yeah, I love those stories about people supporting each other in such difficult circumstances. And Wendy, I'm wondering if, if you have, you know, if you want to speak to that kind of support of folks on the inside between moms down here at the Southern Maine women's reentry center,
3: um, all the women support each other as well. Um, <laughs> I think one of the most beautiful things I've seen, um, as far as like breastfeeding, um, So a woman had her baby um, up at the women's center because you can't be pregnant down here. And after she had the baby, she was brought down and she was breastfeeding and what she would do is she would, um, after she was done breastfeeding, she would kiss her bag of milk and put it in to be picked up. And so one of the women was like, Why do you do that and she said because there's a kiss going to my baby it like chokes me up because i'm like wow like Mm. you know it's beautiful (laughs) um so we down here we don't see a lot of that um basically because pregnant women and new mothers don't often come down here um but as far as like in general like most of us in here, I think there's only like three or four women in here that are not mothers. Um, We, you know, celebrate each other's children's birthdays. And, you know, that may look like making a prison cake from commissary items. And, you know, a lot of times we got a lot of talented women in here that crochet or draw. um, And we'll all get together and make you know, stuffed animals or blankets, or, you know, things like that. um, So the women can send that home to their child. Um, It's, you know, when we see another woman in here struggling, even if it's somebody that we normally don't associate with on a daily basis, we always, you know, lift them up, like, hey, do you need to talk? Like, what's going on? Like, um you know and just kind of sit with them if if that just means sitting in silence um and i think it stems from we're all in here hurting and we're all in here away from our families and children and struggle with that on a daily basis um you know you see women hanging up the phone after a 15 minute phone call just in tears because you know their child is crying for them and they can't get to them um and it's you know, well, do you want to talk about it? And, you know, well, let's think of some things that we can do to, you know, help this child process what's happening. Um, So yeah, we really lean on each other in here. And, you know, the hurt and the pain and the, you know, the nights that women stay up crying, because, you know, they're missing their children. And, or there isn't a big event happening with their child, whether it be their birthday or even graduating or, you know, their first step, you know, um, it, it's hard to miss those things, those milestones. And so, you know, we all, and and the staff here is, is pretty lenient about us doing that. Um, <clears throat> we have a few that don't really, because we can't pass and receive things so like we can't you know buy something and then give it to somebody else or we get disciplinary but most of the staff is really good about us coming together with things that we bought together and you know creating something special for either the mother or the child at home so um, you know we do get creative in here Um, like Kayla said you know some of the most brilliant creative women i've ever met in my life has has come from inside so it's a struggle it's it's um it's a hard it's a hard pill to swallow like you know on a the constant worry of oh gee she you know, is my child doing okay today or you know just sometimes you just sit and wonder what are they doing you know or are they outside? Are they missing me? Like I'm missing them or, you know, and, and it's hard. So living together, like we see other people that are struggling, you know, we can identify that. So being able to, Hey, are you, are you doing okay today? You know, or is this something you want to talk about? Or, you know, and usually like, even like I said, even if you don't usually associate with each other, people open up. You know, because we're
1: all in the same understanding of what's happening. Mm. I I really am, like, very moved by hearing about how folks support each other. Um, really moved by that. And that feels like how people hold on to humanity in a system that's really dehumanizing, right? Um I think I'm, I'm wondering if each of you could speak a little bit about because so many women in Maine are ending up entangled in the family regulation system or being incarcerated because of substance use. I'm just wondering if y'all can talk a bit about what are what are the things that are happening for, for moms who are trying to parent through substance use, whether that's their own or another, you know, parent of their child or children. And also like, what are the things that you wish were happening instead? Right. Cause that, that feels like a big piece of this is that people are caught in these systems because of substance use. Um, and so there's a punitive response happening to something that is, you know, widely considered to be uh, a medical need, right? A spiritual need that's unmet. So I'm wondering if y'all can talk about that a bit, whether it's about the experiences with incarceration or the family policing system.
2: Um, sure. So one thing um, that I really wanted to make sure I talked about um, was my experience with as a birth worker. Um, I work a lot with moms in recovery or moms who have used drugs or you currently use drugs. And, um, one of the policies that we have in the state of Maine is that if a pregnant person gives birth and is prescribed medication, you know, is prescribed like Suboxone or methadone, um, which is the gold standard for treatment for a woman with substance use disorder. Um, then they immediately, so even prescribed by a doctor doing everything that they are supposed to be doing and, you know, in a lot of situations feeling good and empowered and, and feeling really excited and beautiful about their experience, you know, becoming a parent. Um, they immediately are met with having to have be investigated by um, the family policing system. So they have, um, you know, arguably one of the the most memorable moments in a a mom's life, right? Like any, if you ask any woman that's given birth, like what her birth experience was like, most times she can tell you like down to the moment, minute, like what happened, right? Because it's just such a profound moment in our lives. Um, Then you have a a DHS worker coming in and asking you about um, your incarceration, your charges, um, you know, arguably the most traumatic moments of your life and asking you to, to talk about that while you're holding your baby that's less than 24 hours old. Um, and and that's just really disgusting. And it, and it feels gross. And um, it creates a lot of problems. Um, it's scary. Um, so you're taking, you're, you're stripping the opportunity for something really beautiful. And now you're making it something that's anxiety ridden. Um, and actually, like, potentially taking someone that was feeling really good and empowered and like, Hey, I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing like what I need to do to keep me and my child safe. And now um, making it something that they should be ashamed of or feel not good about. Or um, so that happens very frequently. And every time that happens, it's hard. Um, Even when it's not like, like I said before, you know, it's not my um, experience, but it's traumatizing for me to be like part of sometimes too, just to like watch um, you know, I've seen children taken um, from their, from their moms um, based on situations that happen like years before, you know, with substance use related. So, and then once you get this, the system in your life, it is so hard to, um, to get it out. Like they, it's just, I don't know how to describe it, but it's, it's, it's awful. And so, um, and the other thing I think that is related is, um, the way that our family policing system responds to domestic violence situations. Um, our society is very much victim blaming. Um, and so a lot of times, like, and I'll speak from my own experience. Um, you know, I was in a situation where the person that I, you know, created a child with was not making safe choices. Right. And so I was doing what I felt like I needed to do to keep myself and my child safe and in doing so, um, you know, had to, I mean, I didn't, I didn't get in trouble, but I did have to, you know, I was, it was investigated essentially by the family policing system um, and everything was okay, but like that shouldn't happen. I'm asking for help. You know, I'm asking um, for my community to, to stand around me. And instead I'm just met with questions and interrogations and and it didn't feel good. And I, and um, just want to add to like, I consider myself to be very privileged in that I do have, you know, my mom and dad who support me wholeheartedly, and I have a beautiful community of recovery and I have a lot of people in my corner, um, but I know that's not true for everybody. And so that situation could have gone very differently if I didn't have, um, you know, my mom there to say like, after the conversation to be like, no, like the way that you were treated wasn't okay. You need to call and advocate, you know, like, so. Um, I recognize that people don't always have that support. And so people that are really good parents that are making, doing the very best that they can do sometimes with minimal um, resources still have their children taken and that's tragic and that's not okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know that we have talked a bit in the past about how once someone has DHHS, that family policing system in their lives, it's like the past is never passed. Um, you know, the, there's always the looming fear that a case could be opened again, right? That someone's going to show up, um, whether it's because of calling the, the police for help in a domestic violence situation or um, you know, a, a neighbor uh, sees someone looking tired, a mother looking tired and and makes a call and says, I think this person's using drugs again. You know, um, there's so many ways that uh, I see people that I work with holding that tension and fear that even if they, you know, follow all of the rules and and work very hard to do everything these systems are telling them to do, that it's not going to be enough. And I think as a as a birth worker also, Kayla, like part of what I'm trying to do is restore people's sense that they are enough, um, that they don't have to internalize all of this shame and blame. And um, I think that's really, you know, people who haven't been a part of that family policing system often see it as a source of support. But when we talk to folks who are really on the end of experiencing it, that's not often the case, right? It's not it's seen as um a looming threat that something's going to be taken from you, that you might be judged unfit, right? And that's such a damning thing for mothers to carry, especially. Um, and Wendy, I'm I'm sure you have things to say about this too. So I want to make space for you to share too. I, I I
3: have to agree with the the fear. Um my personal story um my son was 15 months old when my twins were born and i was a single mother um and i was tired i was so tired um my son didn't like my twins he you know he was little he felt jealous um one of my twins had a heart condition and she would stop breathing. Um, The other twin also had a heart condition, but she was colicky. I didn't sleep for weeks. I was exhausted to the point where I was just crying in desperation for help. I called somebody who I thought I could trust. I said, please, please come and get these kids for a little bit. I'm tired. You need to come and get them. I just, feel like I just need them to be quiet, you know? And they called DHS on me because of the words that I used. Um, I think I may have said, um, I am so tired. I need them to be quiet. I just, you know, I feel like I'm going to hurt them if, they, if, if I don't get sleep.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And they called DHS and So DHS comes to my house and was like, oh, you're threatening to hurt your children. And I was baffled. I'm like, wow, what? Like, I'm crying out for help. And I am explaining I am so tired that Mm -hmm. I need sleep. Like, I feel like I'm going to go crazy. I hadn't had a break since they were born. Um, The case didn't stay open, but I had fear after that of reaching out for help nope I cannot reach out for help because Mm -hmm. DHS is going to take my children I mean same with substance use uh I was prescribed um a narcotic when I was pregnant with my son and even though it was prescribed to me I was using it appropriately or whatever the case may be when he was born um the social worker from the hospital comes in gives me a really big hard time about it and to meet with EHS and all of these things so they didn't open a case there either but they were watching me (laughs) so I was very uncomfortable um I didn't enjoy my baby like I felt like I was walking on eggshells um oh, I can't be, I can't look a certain way. I can't look tired. My hair has to be done. I can't, you know, um, because if not, they're going to assume something more than what it is. Um, and I feel like that happens a lot. Um, like this, what I had said earlier about um, in a prior question about um, how my, how I in my, children over to my mom and I was waiting for my treatment. I feel that um, I wasn't a threat to my children. You know, I, I was maintaining, so I wasn't sick so I could be in treatment. That's what I was doing. And to remove my whole purpose from my life made me regress and not care. You know, like, what do I have left? Um, for me, you know, as someone in recovery now, um, in my experience, we tend to give up like, oh, you're taking that from me. Okay. Well then why work harder? Um, I didn't have supports. I didn't have, I mean, I had my mom, she didn't really understand addiction. Um, but as far as like community supports, I had none, I had nothing. So, you know, I, I fell off and, and I feel like that we need more places for mothers that suffer with substance use disorder can go with their children and get treatment and, uh, you know, and keep their children. Um, by removing the children, it just causes more harm to the mother and child. Um, you know, you lose that closeness, that connection, that bond. Um and it doesn't it doesn't make us as you know substance juice people better. It 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 hurts us. <laughs> you know, we want to numb out that hurt and and that pain and without the right supports out there and you know the right opportunities for to maintain that connection. It just hurts both the child and the parents. It's like being incarcerated away from our, you know, our children. It's it's not helping anybody. You know, the child feels abandonment. You know, well, my children, you know, they lack of trust, you know, feeling of, you know, abandonment issues, um, just all of those things. I mean, even school, like they started to regress in school. So I feel like there needs to be more um, areas to keep children and parents together that are suffering with substance use instead of locking them up. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I just want to piggyback on what you said, Wendy. I think we also like, even outside of like substance use disorder, I think just like as a culture, we need to create more space for parents and moms to be able to say like, this is hard, and I'm tired. Like, um, you know, that story you just told about, about, you know, expressing to someone that you thought that you could trust, like that you were just exhausted, like you needed to sleep, you know, that is reasonable. That is like a human thing to happen. And for you to like express that and then be met with like judgment and, um, you know, interrogation like that, that's just so awful. And it, and like, uh, that reminds me of a situation where after, because when I had my daughter Trinity, I exclusively breastfed her for like the first 14 months of her life. Um, and then I became a doula and I was, I was working, um, you know, in an advocacy role with a, a, a mom that was also in recovery that had just had a baby. Um, and she got investigated by the department, by the family policing system, because while she was breast pumping, so she had no baby in her hands, um, you know, after having major surgery, um, in a very lengthy labor, you know, she had a C-section. Um, so it was less than 48 hours after she had just been cut open. She like fell asleep while she was breast pumping. Um, and it scared the living daylights out of me, right? Because she got eventually got her child taken and, and had the family policing system come because while she was breast pumping, she fell asleep. I mean, that was terrifying. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I can't even begin to tell you the amount of times I have fallen asleep while I was breast pumping. I'm tired. I, I you know, I sleep like an hour at a time. Like that is a reasonable thing. Did I, Have I ever fallen asleep with my baby in my arms? Absolutely not. Um, but I, it was just crazy to me and it's, and it really made me take a step back and say, wow, like talk about walking on eggshells. Like, and I, and I just want to acknowledge too, like The amount of that classism and race and all of that plays into these situations. Because, like, you know, you could have a a white middle class married woman that's tired, right? That falls asleep with a breast pump in her hands. And you can, you know, I I don't want to like generalize, but there's a pretty good chance she's not going to have the state called on her. Whereas if you have like somebody that, you know, has a history of substance use disorder or, um, you know, is a person of color or, There's just so many ways that people get stigmatized and it is so sick, you know, just because she fell asleep, like while she was breast pumping. I mean, that's just insane to me. Um, And like one thing that's always blown my mind is like when I had my daughter, Trinity, um, one area, I guess, of privilege for me was the fact that like I was in a relationship with my daughter's father. So he was there when I gave birth. You know, but it, it's just so ironic because he was my abuser. So like he and actually I, I really believe that part of the reason that I ended up having to have an emergency C-section after several, like almost two days of labor was because my body subconsciously was like trying to keep my baby inside me, right? To keep us safe and, and, and you know. It's crazy to me that I was treated a certain way because he was there with me, even though really um, I'm Trinity and I are 10 times healthier without him in our lives. Right. And thank God I have support and family and I've been able to keep her safe and always been able to like get her out of situations when he was like acting totally
1: not okay. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to add that. Yeah. That's so, that's so important to raise that Kayla really that, you know, I, I've i certainly experienced visiting middle-class white couples in the hospital immediately, you know, after giving birth and seeing all of the, you know, nursing staff and and everyone be so excited for them and celebratory. And there's a sense of protecting that family's joy. And then as a birth worker, you know, accompanying people who are on medication-assisted treatment or you know, who have had um, rough things happen in their lives and are poor and single mothers, It is there is no period um, afterward that's protected and considered sacred. Like you said, there's immediately a, a social worker there to check in and um, there, it, it really breaks my heart to see people um, in those very transformative moments of life, um, be treated with suspicion uh, when they just, you know, safely carried a child into the world and brought them earthside, which is an enormous amount of work. And so, part of what I try to do in my birth work is: how do we protect your joy? How do we protect your sense of this being your time? And it's very hard to do in these systems where it's very clear that class and race and stigma about drug use and incarceration and being a single parent are so shaping the way that uh, healthcare providers treat people, let alone social workers. Um, you know, and I guess I I want to, you know, as we come to, to the end a bit here, I want to circle back to a point that Wendy, you were making about not only are these systems hurting you and, and you know, and hurting mothers, but they're also not giving us the outcomes for children that were promised by this system, right? So we're told that incarceration is about public safety. We're told that child welfare, right? Like the system is called the child welfare system that it's meant to look out for the well-being of children. And so we're not seeing those results, right? Like you all have talked so much about how that's not what's happening for for parents and children. And I guess I'd love for us to sort of wrap up by talking about what are the solutions that we need that we don't have right now, right? Because what we have right now is imprisonment and separation, foster care, adopting out um, messy processes of reunification that happen under strict surveillance. I want to spend some time imagining what else might we create that doesn't exist right now that would benefit both mothers and their children instead of what we have right now is pitting their interests against one another and and I want a world where we don't have to do that and so I wonder if you could talk a bit about
2: yeah um man if I if I imagine like a world where the, the world that I that I advocate for, right, that we're trying to create together. Um, that would be one of like community where when you have a child, like your community rallies around you, like meal trains where you don't have to, you know, the, the, the new mom doesn't have to cook um, for like a week or two after um, empowerment. So like having her, you know, her birth be like the one that she's imagined um, having access to like being able to breastfeed or breast pump Um, and then babies and moms not being separated, like not in prison and, and not like from the family policing system Um, and being able to have support and empowerment and like understanding that like not all drug use is problematic. And just because someone uses drugs does not mean that they are not a good parent or that they're not fit to parent. Um, And access to treatment like when and if that person's ready um and we we shouldn't just assume that because someone uses drugs that they need treatment right like Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: I I I think that we could I mean I feel like there's just so much to be said here but just like everyone feeling beautiful and good and like you said creating space for um for a person's birth to like to, for them to have those sacred moments and for them to be able to stand in their beauty and their truth and like um have a birth experience that is not traumatizing that is not like separating um one thing that i i think is so ironic is the fact that like you know we talk about adverse child experiences like the aces test that they that they give kids right and like one of the questions on it is have you had a parent or multiple you know both parents that are incarcerated so like by like continuing mass incarceration in our country we are like you know increasing people's chances or traumatic experiences we're we're, we're creating traumatic experiences in people's lives um and and creating like more need for um resources and treatment and, and all of all of that stuff so um just taking away incarceration altogether. i mean incarceration is crazy expensive um so treatment, education, um, access to education, um, prevention, harm reduction. So like, even if someone, you know, if if someone's using, like being able to use in a safe space and, um, feel good and beautiful and loved and part of their community, no matter what they
1: are choosing to do. Right. Mm
0: hmm
1: Yeah. Wendy, what do you think we need? Oh. Oh, so much. Um,
3: I, I mean, I have to agree with Kayla on everything that she had said. Um, I, I feel that I imagine, you know, a a world with, you know, not separating parents from children, um, you know, offer, offer treatment instead of incarceration, um, you know, give them the, the supports, the community involvement, um, you know, that they need. If like, in my experience, if I would have had, you know, community supports where I could call and say, can you please help me for a couple hours, um, Mm -hmm. you know, safely, it just, you know, it would have, you know, I wouldn't have had that fear and anxiety about, now, now I can't ask for help, Um, you know, and being able to, you know, have somebody to talk to, you know, call, not everybody has family supports, you know, single moms, single dads or whatever, Um, you know, (laughs) money wise, um, you know, allow people to have what they need to be comfortable, Uh, I think that's, that's huge. Um, I, you know, offer, you know, education and there's just so much, (laughs) there's just so much. (laughs) I mean, I could probably go on for days about, you know, about this. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it, it it touches my heart, you know, um, my son's, counselor, my son was experiencing a lot of anger, um, self-harm, um, suicidal tendencies and things. And my, my son's counselor said, the reason why he's acting this way is because his mother's incarcerated. And um, and he felt that it you know, would be beneficial if he would be able to see that I was okay you know, see that for himself to know that I was okay and not worry about his mother. And it's, and I think that's what's needed. Like, you know, children, children suffer too, like the brain development, you know, suffers when they're not with their parents. Um, You know, they worry that, you know, they worry if we're okay, just like we worry if they're okay. You know, the, uncertainty of of that just you know I feel like just keeping them together you know without being separated whether that looks like you know places where parents can go with their children or even like you know a place where it's safe that they can drop their child off for you know a few hours and and go and get them you know after the fact you know just things like that i just think we need a lot more to keep people
1: connected yeah yeah i, f- I feel that what's part of what's missing for me i mean i i don't just want to remove the the prisons and the current family policing system right it, abolition is also about what we want to create and i feel like the blessing for me in my life of, of building relationships with folks like both of you and so many other women who have had these experiences is that you all offer a vision of what a world that is not about punishment, but about opportunities for repair, for relief, for, you know, for a a parent to be able to say, I am tired, I need help. And for that to be seen as a strength to reach out for that instead of a reason to raise alarm, a reason to take away children. And I think, um, I really believe when we center mothers who have had the experiences y'all have had, we are going to craft solutions that benefit all parents um, and stop telling a lie that parents never need a break, that parents always know the exact right thing to do and that you know our relationships with children have to be seamless and never involve any kind of hurt. Um, instead, we can say hurt exists, and we can we can repair. Um, but that separation takes so much of the tragedy from you that so it steals the opportunity for repair and healing. Um, so I want to thank you both for what you've shared, and I know there's so much more that you could share, but what you've given here is so meaningful. And I just want you to know how much I value it. And that telling your truths like this is such a gift to those of us, all of us who are trying to imagine a different world, right, where our families can be together and be whole um, and have dignity. And so I'm just really deeply grateful for what you've both shared. Thank you so much for being part of this conversation
2: thank you for having for having us i mean really this this these type of conversations are so important um i think because it, get, it allows us the opportunity for you know folks to be able to understand what it's truly like but for me it's healing like to be able to use that hurt and that pain and that like hell in as some sort of like positive spin is, is just so important and so healing. And I would be willing to wager that, um, you know, I'll probably have a pretty good cry after this, um, you know, in in a, in a good healing way, but thanks so much for the opportunity. And I just appreciate you, Kate and Wendy and, and, um, everybody that has um, been part of this. I just am so grateful.
3: I'm grateful for being able to be a part of this too. Um, this, This is so important, um, like Kayla said, you know, to, you know, educate on how it affects us and our children um, and through lived experience of these traumatic issues. Um, So I want to thank you, Kate and Kayla and everybody that made this
0: possible to be able to be a part of this as well. What an incredibly powerful conversation. Thank you, Kate, Kayla, Wendy, for um, being willing to show up with your truths and, and to be so, so honest and open with the listeners of this program. Um, you, your wisdom um, coming from your own life experience and uh, your ability to see through the harms that the current system perpetuates, the ways in which it is profoundly damaging um, to, to parents and to mothers and to offer us a vision of alternative ways forward is exactly what we, what we need to be listening to over and over and over again. Uh, so enormous um, gratitude to you for uh, giving us this time. Next week on the Freedom and Captivity podcast, we're gonna be continuing with the same theme and we're gonna be digging into alternatives to incarceration regarding drug policy. Uh, we're gonna be talking with two experts in this area Winifred Tate, who is professor of anthropology at Colby College and the director of the Maine Drug Policy Lab at Colby College, is gonna be interviewing, talking with Courtney Allen, who is the policy director of Maine Recovery Advocacy Project about alternatives to incarceration that focus on harm reduction rather than punish, punishment. So please join us next week as well. Thanks to the Portland Media Center for sponsoring the Freedom and Captivity podcast. To Josh Riddle, our sound engineer, and to Samuel James, whose music opens and closes each episode. Thanks for listening. Mm